Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Secrets of Scale series, where I'm connecting you to founders who have built things to scale. Uh, with me on the line is the co-founder and CEO of Champ Titles. Interesting brand name, but his name is uh, Shane Bigelow. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Matt. Shane, great to have you here, man. Um, so listen, why don't you kick us off and just paint a picture for our audience of like, you know, who are your customers, what are you in the business of, and the problem that you're solving? Yeah, absolutely. So um, since you brought up the brand, I'll, I'll share what it is. So, um, you know, the champ in boxing holds the title. So it's a little bit of a play on words there. Um, but uh, most people know us as just champ. So the uh, the company builds technology uh, for government to replace their aging title and registration systems. So anybody that's ever waited in line at the DMV or had to deal with uh, their motor vehicle department is probably familiar with the pain of that transaction. And we set out to try to solve it, but we took it from a different approach. We said, well, what do the users actually need? What do the consumers need? The car dealers, the insurance carriers, the fleet operators, what do they need? And if they can get that from their state government, then we'll be able to have a lot of transactions. And that's the way we get paid is through the transactions. Very interesting. So what's the backstory to this? Because it's it's a quite a different problem that you guys are solving. Is what was the, How did you land up with the business that you have? Yeah. So it, it, you know, my first startup, uh, you know, at this stage, uh, more years ago than I, I care to remember, uh, or, um, care to admit, I suppose <laughs> I like remembering them, but, um, I was in automotive lending and, you know, when you're, when you understand automotive lending, one thing that lenders have to do is apply liens to a title. And back then I recognized that there was a problem with titling. Uh, my, my, my co-founder was a, a very large car dealer, and uh, he's not operating the business. He he was chairman of our board, um, but the, you know he understood it from the retail perspective of all the pain and the angst that consumers go through. And as we spent time trying to figure out how to solve this problem together, we realized that we could help government and at the same time help the constituents if we we really solved this issue of why are why is the titling process in all 50 states so slow and so so cumbersome and there hadn't been new technology in the space for the better part of two decades um i, I you know unfortunately a lot of motor vehicle departments um you know didn't have the budget to make the changes they needed to make and so they were stuck with some older technologies in fact many times the mainframes we see are 40, 50, or 60 years old. So from a business uh, opportunity, this looked like a place that was ripe for change. And we decided to uh, go after it together. So um, let's talk about this. So I'm curious, I'm getting Peter Newell on the show. He's a former uh, Navy SEAL. He was basically uh, in charge of the US military's on the ground uh, innovation program so i mean they you know it was ridiculous amounts of money that he was putting into um innovation in the military and um, he's coming back onto the show he's been on my show well it'll be the second time but but it's i'm curious to ask you about the government because um i was chatting to um, a founder yesterday and we were talking about you know ai and chat gpt and this kind of stuff and and we were curious about 
how innovative is the public sector really? You know, if you talk about the government specifically, uh, when it comes to the adoption of these tools, I mean, clearly you guys have, you've scaled, you've raised roughly 30 million so far. Um, you know, it's not a small amount of money uh, compared to most, um, but you, you've gone into the government to help them innovate. Do you know what I mean? So sure. curious yeah. to, to, to ask you, like you're at the coal face of it, like how is the government or the public sector actually innovating when it comes to technology? Yeah, you know, what I've observed is the vast majority of em- employees at the government or, or elected officials do genuinely want to help their constituents. Um, unfortunately, their hands are often tied by, um, you know, either very complex procurement rules or uh, contracts that are difficult to break or get out of. And what you really needed it was a, was a, a combination of things to occur for government to be able to uh, accept that there were other technologies that could help them. Uh, the first thing you needed was that people had to start consuming uh, a lot more on their phone. And as that as that happened, uh, what you observed was that just individuals became used to this idea of SaaS, right? Software as a service became a thing. And we consumed it, whether it was from an app or whether it was from a subscription service of some sort, but we got used to it. But it never really entered a lot of the government space. Um, it started, oddly enough, in hunting and fishing licenses and camping licenses and uh, marriage licenses where you could go online and finally apply for one of those. But it never made it into the DMV until the last couple of years. And as it did, what DMVs realized, and by the way, unfortunately for DMVs, most of them are on the list of one of the top 10 things that every governor in the country wants to fix in their state because it's a pain point for citizens. They started to say, well, how can I fix this even though I've got all these other problems like uh, identity and licensing and roads and bridges and infrastructure that I need to spend time on? How can I fix this thing that actually causes people to be in line and perhaps uh, have a you know a, a a bigger problem with moving around their second largest asset, which is their car. And insert us. Um, what we found was that they're very receptive to the idea of saying, "Okay, you've done it over here with hunting, fishing, and other things. Uh, you've started to do it in things like your driver's license and identity. Now let's take this this document, whether it's title, or registration, or a lien." And let's move it into the digital world using a SaaS service. And that was new, right? That's not something that they've seen before, been able to consume before. It was always that they had to buy a really big on-prem, non-cloud-based, heavy keystroke system. You know, if you've ever walked up to a, a DMV clerk, it's a lot like going to the counter at the airport where you say, my name's Shane Bigelow. And they type for what feels like six minutes. And you're like, there's not that many letters. What were you possibly typing? But it's because of the way they have to interact with their system that it causes the the pace to go very slowly. It's the same thing at the DMV when they're dealing with this old technology. Insert something new, and all of a sudden the advancement can reach you know the masses very quickly. And we've seen that in you know one of our our first states where they've gone from processing in forty days down to zero days. Uh, it's a almost a real time processing at this stage. So. You know, what I've observed is that government wants to help. They just needed 
the, the, they needed a, a moment where there was a business model that would enable them to focus on the projects that required their attention and then not focus on the things that could be fixed through technology. And that moment just happened to be in the last few years. Okay. So you scaled both, you know, uh, uh, you've scaled a startup in the private sector and now with champ titles in the public sector. How is it different or is there a degree of added difficulty when it comes to scaling a startup when you look at your experience in the private versus the public sector? Is there a difference or do you feel like, dude, it doesn't matter? Or do you feel that when you're successful at selling into the government, your ticket sizes are higher, you know, because the the money's all there effectively? What's your experience been? Scaling is is always hard. Um, You know, I'd love to find the person that says it's easy and maybe I could learn something from them. Um, So I, I I think it's been hard. It's hard in both sectors, but the, the, the reality of government is, is a little more akin to what you, you said there at the end. Um, Once you get the contract, right, it grows pretty quickly because the users are there, right? We all have to consume government services. So the key is finding a way for the government to be able to deliver the service back to their constituents and have it resonate and actually have it solve a real problem, right? We took it from the perspective of a lender needing liens to prove that they had a stake in an asset. And sometimes that would take far too long and something would happen to the asset in between the time when they wanted to have the lien and when they actually got it. Similarly, car dealers they'll buy and sell cars. And when they buy a car from someone, if they have to wait three, four, six, sometimes eight weeks to get a title so they can sell the car, that's dead inventory and it's very expensive. So by trying to solve those problems, um, what we've observed is that you can scale a lot faster in, in government because if you're solving the constituent problems, the government will give you an opportunity to try to help them. In the private sector, um, I, I think, there's probably an argument that some B2C businesses could could scale even even faster. Um, but in the B2B world, you know, I, I do think a lot of companies are skeptical of doing business with startups, right? I, I think they everybody likes to talk about it, but very few entities actually want to do it. At the end of the day, um, you know, most people go to work and they don't want to lose their job. And so how do you not lose your job? You don't take a risk. And in in government, if you're solving the constituent problem, that is their risk. Their risk is that the constituents continue to have the problem tomorrow. So anyone that can solve it, uh, provided that they can meet a certain standard, a quality of vendor, and have the right partners. We we do this with partners. We're not doing this alone. We've got some really big, great partners that help us with things in government. And, And that's a key, too, is that you have to know what you can do well and what you can't. And partners are key to this. So... I, I think I feel like it's a bit of a rambling answer to your question, but I, I think government actually can scale faster in many cases than the private sector, particularly versus B2B. I do see that B2C potentially has a lot more opportunity to scale. And you just look at you know social media and other things that can scale a lot faster in the B2C world. Yeah. So just on that, um, it's quite interesting, right? In that the in America if you're in a B2C space, you're actually quite privileged because you have this massive consumer market. There's 400, you know, 350, 400 million people that you can scale to overnight, assuming you have the capital to do that. 
in Africa, you don't have that massive consumer market. Like in South Africa, there's say 45, 50 million consumers. So if you were a B2B business, what you would do to get 10 million customers overnight is that you would go B to B to C. And if you were in the financial services space, for example, you would go to the bank and you would say, hey, Mr. Standard Bank, <clears throat> excuse me, or whoever the financial service company is, we've developed this mobile payment solution. This is an actual example. Uh, SnapScan was the company. And then what they did was to get access to 10 million customers overnight, quote unquote, they would sell to the intermediary to get access to the consumer base. What's interesting from an observational perspective from my side, Shane, is that you're actually in a B to G to C. It's weird, mm -hmm. right? So like I've never yeah. actually come up with that. This B to G is business to government to consumer. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I would I would say that if you if you wanted to get access to literally the entire country with one strategic part being the government, for instance, if you took, okay, I know there's states here, let's just take New York, whatever the case is. But if you wanted to, you know, scale your solution, your platform uh, to, or title management or what have you, you know, to all the drivers in New York, then the government is your partner. You know what I mean? And it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a very, very powerful idea in a developed and mature market like the U.S., I, you're exactly right. And, and the way that we've thought through this is that if you, if you solve the problems that that consumer is having, whether that consumer happens to be a car dealer, a human that's just trying to move their own personal vehicles around or an insurance carrier or a fleet operator, however you want to define person, if you solve that person's issue, then they will consume the service that's made available to them through government. And you wind up with a much wider, you know, um, subset of users. I mean, I'm I'm always amazed. We have these big screens in our office, and I I see them and I watch the transactions, and uh, it's kind of amazing to see how quickly it grows and how many new users are coming at, through and touching it and and creating a transaction. Uh, and you're right, the government is the conduit, and I I I truly believe that so many companies have looked at the government and said, that's my customer. And that's where they stopped. And they stopped because the government has so much money to give out because they tax people and that's how they get their money. We didn't want to take that approach. We didn't want to just like suck the air out of the government and and make it our air. That, that didn't seem like we were doing anything good for society if we did that. Instead, we said, well, what's the consumer problem? Let's route it through the government and we'll solve the consumer problem. The government will be happy. And everyone will pay less in fees than they would have paid as taxpayers had they had to buy a big system in the government to solve this problem in a different way. Mm. And on that bombshell, we're going to take a quick break. The Matt Brown Show is presented by Carafin, an investment bank that offers and supports direct private investments in U.S. operating companies. Over the past 20 years, investors have placed over $1.2 billion of private debt and equity in more than 100 companies through Carafin and its affiliates. Carafin leverages technology to empower its community of investors to deploy their capital far more efficiently than ever before and connects their community of engaged investors with worthy companies. Invest portions of your portfolio in direct private investments today. Visit carafin.com forward slash Matt Brown show for more. Shane, uh, I have a question now because <laughs> you got me curious. So the government is not a small 
buyer of what you do. And to your point, they have all these users, right? Um, so when you do a deal with the government, my sense would be is that you are you could be put, put into a situation where you need to scale quickly, which means you need to scale potentially infrastructure, maybe your back office operations and things like that. Um, has that been the case for you? And what have you learned about scaling operations and infrastructure when you're dealing with a massive client uh, or customer like the government? Well, I, uh, so it has and has not been the case for us. And I'll explain what I mean. Um, we've deployed a lot of technology to solve problems that historically have been solved by humans. Um, and the logic was uh, there's only so many people that can be hired in the government before it's more of a drain on all of us as taxpayers. So if we can give the people that are currently in government better tools by deploying more technology, then they can get to the tasks that are actually much more um, in need of a heavy touch from them. And so by deploying a lot of technology, uh, we didn't actually need to grow our back office in some way to just be a business process outsource company, right? And then I think that's kind of been one of the models that of, of company that's gone after government is to say, well, we'll do it for you. Well, okay, but where's the efficiency in that? It's just taking humans from one place and moving them to another. Let's make the humans that are there more efficient. And so by doing that, our technology does enable uh, a lot of things to occur without massive additions of human or headcount on our side, which is sort of classic software model, right? Um, you didn't, you don't, you shouldn't need that many humans if your software works really well. But there are things that we don't do, and I, I, I firmly believe that we don't have a corner on genius. Uh, wake up every day trying to learn from great companies that are around us. And by finding really great partners in different sectors and um, either within government or with outside of government that has to work with these constituents and leveraging them for what they're good at, it's also helped us not have to grow the headcount in the same way if we tried to vertically handle all of that ourselves. So, you know, I, I spent some time at a company I love called Cisco Systems. And I've, I've never seen a place that did a better job of, of really, truly partnering with the different channels that got their products into the market. And I'd like to think that, you know, at this stage, almost 20 years later, I still take that as part of my DNA because we're trying to bring that forward in our company to say, there are great partners that do things that are better than, than what we do. Let's partner with them and leverage them. So I think scale is also not just what your headcount looks like, but how are you leveraging the great things that are around you and admitting that there are entities that do things better than you? Exactly. And I think what you're touching on, another way to rearticulate what you said from my experience is it's this idea that, look, <clears throat> you're a SaaS company. Let's just say that your your ticket size over the course of a year is you know, $10,000 for the purposes of illustration. What you're saying is, especially in the governmental space, like they don't just want to buy that one SaaS product. There's other things that go along with the implementation of that. There are processes that it impacts. There are quantifiable costs and unquantifiable costs of implementing this thing. 
And so when, and now suddenly it's like, well, hang on, but you only do this one thing, but it affects this thing like training, but you don't do training. So then what you're saying is as you go from essentially a product cell to a solution cell. So you bring in three partners or two partners, or in this example, one partner to do the training. Maybe there is a data mapping, uh, you know, solution provider that you bring in or strategic partner that you bring in. And so together you take your ticket from, let's just say $10,000 to $50,000. But together the value of that solution cell is more more valuable to the buyer than it is just buying your ten thousand dollars SaaS product. It, that that's a it's a fair way to think about it. With one uh, caveat, um, we look at the current partners that are already inside of government and uh, try to partner with them to say, can we leverage you a different way? So that way. Instead of going from ten thousand to fifty thousand, um, those companies are already getting paid. They're already a line item in the government's budget. So we're trying to make use of them more efficient, and they might make a little bit more if the tasks at hand expand. But we wouldn't want the scale to be, you know, ten to five x ten. That that wouldn't necessarily be fair. There's another way that we've tried to um, to do this, and, and I, 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 I think this is starting to resonate in the market. I hope that anyone that's listening uh, realizes this. There are players in the uh, in the, the the private sector that want to connect into government, and they want to be able to use government services to sell the value added services they sell. So part of our challenge was when we were building technology, do we do we go out and compete with all of those entities that are having value-added services on top of government, or do we just make their businesses more efficient because now they can do things digitally and they don't have to run paper with couriers and they don't have to worry about errors because our AI is checking things or you know whatever the case might be. And so um, that was that became our our concept and and frankly i think some of those folks probably sometimes think that we're we're competing with them but we're really just trying to make them better because our view is that's another way to scale right they they have all of these customers they've had for eons they've got relationships and and contracts together why would we try to go take those if we can simply get them to use the government services better they will sell sell in air quotes our product for us because they'll say, "Hey, we have a better way to process this title, this registration, this lien for you," and they're the service providers to many companies out there. And so we love the service provider community because they sit on top of the government. They what I say is it's a battle of prepositions. We build technology for government; they build technology that connects to government. So if the connection to government is better because of what we've built, their businesses will make more money and their consumers will be happier and will scale without having to go get those consumers all on our own because they'll they'll go do that because it's good for their business. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. And I see it more and more, this idea of scaling through strategic partnerships. And there's this old doctrine, right? It's like, well, you find product market fit, you must know your unit economics, and you know you must get to a point where you put $1 in and get $3 out. And then and only then do you go and raise your Series A so then you can put more engine into the, or fuel rather, into the rocket ship so that you can, you know, scale and make more money. 
Um, but I've seen it not only in the context of what we've discussed so far, Shane, but I've also seen it in the context of funding. So I know a lot of founders who've tried the VC route and who, for whatever reason, obviously VCs don't always get it right, um, but they, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they found like, well, you know, the cost of capital is too high at the moment, given where the market's at, you know, or maybe it's just harder than normal, given where the market's at. And so what they've done is they've looked at strategic partners to help them fund. So they will take 10 million from a strategic partner, to your point, imagine there's you know a provider that connects to you know what i'm saying like that example and you and they funded your growth you know what i mean like you became not only strategic partners but equity partners too uh, well you're you're hitting on exactly uh what we've done some of our some of our funding has come from exactly those partners so um you know i i in your first example of that sort of classic model of you know dollar in show me your cost of goods sold show me the return i'll give you more money later i remember sitting in college and having a professor tell me this and i sort of argued against it and said well couldn't you just partner with a bunch of folks and get there faster and they're like no 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 it doesn't work that way and i said well but what about this example and that example yeah but those are unicorns it'll never happen and it's like no it's happening all over the place but it's not making its way into a textbook and I, I think a lot of businesses are looking at this and saying, you know, let's stop with the ego and the hubris that we can be, you know, vertically integrated and do everything for you, right? We 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 probably can't. So why face that battle? Let's partner with the best in class out there. And many times when they see that that's your genuine attitude, that you're not trying to steal their cheese, then they're happy to invest in you. Um, it, it takes some convincing. It's a cultural shift, I think, for some of those strategic partners too, because they're not they're not necessarily accustomed to someone coming in and genuinely trying to help. But I, I worked for a great uh, CEO yeah, years ago, and he used to say, um, the world would be so much better if everyone just presumed positive intent. So PPI, just presume positive intent. And that's what it takes with strategic partners is you have to convince them, just presume I'm not here to, to I'm not an ax murderer, I'm not here to kill you. Just, just let me in, I'm gonna try to be helpful. And if I'm not, you can just turn this. You can just turn this off, right? And it's not going to cost anything. Um, your investors made a decision, and and like you said, not all VC investments work out. Uh, but hopefully, you know, this one does. Well, you mentioned Cisco, right? So I spent my previous company was a media business that did, uh, you know, pipeline generation for tech brands. So we worked right across Africa and the Middle East for you know everybody: Cisco, Microsoft, SAP, you name them. And let's be frank. If you know that space, the entire, the whole ecosystem there for these mature behemoth companies like Microsoft is based off partnerships. Partnerships, yeah. That's it. So, mm -hmm. like, if it's working for the most valuable companies in the world, why wouldn't it work for you? And to your point, I think people are distrusting, right? Because there's this idea that there's not enough to go around, you know. But I think sometimes the best part you mean we're also not saying by the way that you need to have 10 of these things you need one mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. good one and it can change everything when it comes to scale yeah i uh, i couldn't agree with you more I, I i often find that textbooks are about 40 years behind right they're analyzing what happened as opposed to what is happening and you know you look at microsoft and cisco and um, you know, to some extent, uh, IBM was at the forefront of this and, and maybe they've gotten a little bit away from it, but the, the newer tech companies have sort of, sort of taken it over. 
And I, I see certainly in the in the venture backed communities, so the Series A, B, C type of companies, um, where I, I think they're figuring this out, right? It, it keeps expenses lower, right? Um, um, my investors are hopefully happier that we don't burn capital at the same rate as somebody who's trying to do everything vertically. Um, you know, are you going to dominate the world? Maybe, but maybe not. But everyone will, you know, do really well. And isn't that the point? Um, and so I think if we just, you know, for us, it's our culture is just stay focused on doing what we do well, find partners for everything else, pick the gold standard partner. And if they really like you, they'll invest in you and support you. The other thing to say is that <clears throat> I think a lot of startups seem to think that strategic partnerships happen later, you know, so it's like you get, uh, you know, startup phase, growth phase, mature phase and expansion, say. So when you are at this mature stage, it's kind of like, well, you kind of dominated the the market appetite for what you're selling potentially. And so you, what, what typically happens, you get into a series B round. And so you start to acquire companies like Salesforce acquiring Slack, da, 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 da. they acquired a whole bunch of companies and then completely blew the integration of it. Like I was talking to the, um, the, one of the head of well, one of the account directors. And she's like, if I wanted to set up someone for a Slack license, I don't even know who to talk to you at Salesforce. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, and yeah. so, so it's one idea, which is to grow through acquisition. And you know, again, depending on how old the company is and PE starts playing a role, less so VC. And, but then it's like, well, what strategic partnerships do you have in place? You know what I mean? So that you can start to diversify into other industries where you potentially didn't have much traction. The, the, um, the, 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 uh, visual that I think of is, um, when you're, if you were back in uh, the gold rush period and you were, you were sort of putting all the dirt in your sifter and you're shaking it and you're trying to get all the dirt to come through and the gold to be on top. That's, that's what I feel like when we go to find strategic partners, because um, you know, I, a lot of people would tell us early on, oh, that company's not going to want to talk to you. And I, it was like, maybe, maybe not. Let's say, shake the shifter and, and see what would happen. And oftentimes what you find is that these larger companies are desperate for some sort of innovation and they maybe can't get it internally or can't get it as quickly internally because they've got so many other projects to worry about. But as you're sifting through all these big companies, what you'll find is a few gold rocks you know, kind of surface to the top. And those are the companies that want to innovate, but realize they may not be able to do it internally, that are willing to listen to your story and, and genuinely work together to try to solve problems. And I think all they really want in return is some level of patience from you as a startup that, hey, you're not going to move as fast as I want you to move, right? It's going to it's gonna cost a little bit more. It's going to take a little bit more time, but the payout is there. It's a lot like government. You, you, you wind up with a lot more users if, you're, if your partner already has all the customers and you just have to tie into them. Um, so, I always, that's the analogy of whenever I went out or try to go out now, even for partners or, or investment partners, it's, you know, you don't always take, you don't always take the highest valuation or the sexiest brand. What you take is the one that can help you the most. And I think we've, we've done that and uh, hopefully I'm right. Well, so far so good, right? I think the other thing, speaking of analogies, so if my, it's like strategic partners are like looking for a car parking spot but not any car parking spot, the one right outside the front door, right? Because <laughs> here's the thing. I don't know how you found this, Shane, but when you go to a busy shopping center, 
and you're looking for a car parking space, how often do you look whether there's a where there's one open right outside the front? Many of us don't do that. We go look at the back or where we feel like, oh, there's going to be a space there or, you know, because, you know, everything by the front door is taken. So like, and I do it deliberately. It pisses my wife off to no end. But like, <laughs> I'll literally drive there and I'll like look for the one right outside the front. Because if you don't look, you don't get. And it's the same thing with strategic partnerships. Yeah, I, I, I have three sons and uh, this is how I taught them the meaning of the words pole position because I refer to that first spot as, oh, we got the pole position. They're like, what did, what did we get? Like the pole position, we got the front best spot. And I, I'm exactly with you. I go for that spot every time. And I also think it's, you know, the, like the presumed positive intent. It's also the power of positive thinking. I'm, I'm always amazed that I only find those spots on days when I'm in a good mood and I'm positive on days when I might be feeling negative. I never find that spot. So I might as well just be happy and hope for the best. And maybe you're sticking your head in your sand and head in the sand sometimes, but I still like getting that first spot. So I'll, I'll take it, uh, even with a sandy head. <laughs> like an ostrich. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. All right, guys, we'll take a quick break. Scale your business with your own AI powered digital marketing assistant. Sign up today and get $250 of your first month's ad spend back. Check out meetotis.com forward slash rapid returns for more. Raising money for your startup? Well, why don't you close your next funding round fast? Get investor-focused media and FaceTime with relevant investors in days. Visit showworksmedia.com for more. That's showworksmedia.com. Shane, when it comes to scale, what are you struggling with right now? What's on your mind? Uh, you know, it's funny. I uh, regularly feel like our vision is pretty similar to, uh, you know, the, the days or weeks before we actually hit go on the company five years ago. But I regularly hear, well, we're trying this, we're trying that. You know, we don't have as much focus Maybe it's the size of the aperture of the lens, um, because I feel like the focus is still there. But I, I think as the team gets bigger, I, I've started to realize that um, you you start a company with a handful of people that have a very wide aperture. And as you hire more people, they're very good at their specific roles. And you, you actually need to narrow the aperture for them to have them have the highest probability of success. So getting better at trying to help them uh, with a more narrow aperture and not having them feel like all the different things that we're trying or, or attempting to get better at um, are a distraction, because I can see the view of why we need to do a lot of different things, but we also want to stay focused. And, and it's, it's a lot like the uh, the the hedgehog principle from Jim Collins, good to great book, you know, you, you sort of need that hedgehog principle in order to achieve some level of success. But I also think about the the founder of Netflix and his book and how he talked about how they they tried a lot of different things before they figured out that, you know, mailing DVDs would eventually convert to streaming and uh, production company. And so, you know, you can't argue that they didn't change the world and become a great company. Um, what you can argue is, well, there's some balance between hedgehog principle and, you know, achieving success. And I, I think that's the, 
that's the tough part about scaling any operation is that you have to recognize, or I think you have to recognize that the teams you hire sometimes need you to narrow that aperture for them so that they can have the highest probability of succeeding in their role. And if you don't do that, you're actually doing your team a disservice. So we're trying to get better at that. And, you know, hopefully if anybody on the team is listening, they know that we're trying. (laughs) So you're going to have to explain this hedgehog principle. Uh, Sure. So uh, I'll try to do the book justice, but um, this book, Good to Great, identified uh, a handful of companies that wildly outperformed their peers over 15-year periods. And one of the core things that they identified was that uh, these companies defined uh, their hedgehog principle. So the, the hedgehog, you know, an animal that you know, I, I'm not sure if people have figured out exactly how old it is, but it looks prehistoric. Uh, you know, if you ever seen a hedgehog, and they kind of march along doing their thing. And unlike a fox that sort of tries to outfox the the predators that are coming after it, um, but you know, um, might one day uh, put itself in a risky situation. The hedgehog has the exact same plan every day for predators. It goes along its efforts and then balls up whenever a predator is close and just waits it out. And that hedgehog principle keeps the hedgehog alive. And as it lasts since, you know, prehistoric times till now, I suppose the concept in business is you have to stay focused. Now it doesn't mean that you have to be so narrowly focused that you miss opportunity. I think that's the key difference between the way some people read the book and the way others read the book is, you know, you you just have to be, what are you going to be the best at, right? That hedgehog was the best at protecting itself against prey better than a fox, Um, or against predators rather, better than a fox. How are you going to be the best at what you do? You know, for us, like I said, it's building systems to replace aging title and registration systems in government. How do we be the best at that? My view is serve that end consumer, not necessarily just the government. Like don't don't just suck from the government like so many, uh, you know, entities that service the government do. Instead, think about the problem and solve the problem. And uh, sometimes that leads to trying to solve a lot of things at once, which can, again, lead your team to maybe lose the, the right size aperture. Yeah, it's uh, it's such an interesting thing. You know, the more I speak to people, there's like, no one knows anything. You know what I mean? Like there's your experience and then there's mine and then there's good to great and the hedgehog principle and the hedgehog principle means X to you, but Y to me and Z yeah. to this other dude, you know, or this other lady. Um, and so it, it's, but it is, it's, a, I think the thing for me, it's about the perspective that you take and what you do with it. You know, I think a lot of us are just consumers, we're prosumers. I call them pr- not consumers, prosumers. We're just professional consumers of information now. Um, and so much so that we, we negate the opportunity to actually put it into practice, you know? And so it becomes lip service on a tweet, like just to circle back to something else you said about, um, you know, about how your vision hasn't really changed too much over the, you know, since you started, you're like, we're going to go solve this problem, which is by the way, a rarity. Cause I don't know, like everything I've scaled in my entrepreneurial journey changed radically. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Cause this idea of pivoting, you know, I spoke to Steve Blank, spent hours with him and David Sconthal and many other things theoretical also obviously built big businesses but they're like classical lean startup stuff it's about innovation innovating towards the customer problem and you know the mom test and there's all these these books and the lean startup method and whatever barry agrees 
you know, and four steps to the epiphany. And it's, it's this doctrine, right, of how you scale a startup. And it is about evolving and changing to get to a place where you're at product market fit and then you can scale. But in that process, you wind up in many cases having a business that you didn't anticipate you would ever have, right? Um, and so, and but the idea is, is that there's no silver bullet. You just keep shooting lead <laughs> until something sticks. Well, I, I think you bring up a really good point, and I see it. You know, when if you look at uh, sort of any conflict, um, you know, with a with a partner, a spouse, a colleague, whomever, oftentimes there isn't as much conflict. It's just that you've defined the terms slightly differently. And you ha- and so you know what one one person might call a pivot, another person might say no that was in the aperture I was looking at we just weren't sure if we were on this side or that side but it's not a pivot we're just still in the aperture we're still in the initial view so I think some of it's definitional right sometimes I I think that when we define things or when I define things I'm trying to look through a really big aperture because my job is to see around corners. And what might be viewed as a pivot by one person is actually viewed by others as, no, this is in scope. It's just we have to tweak it a little bit. And so I, I, I your point about the hedgehog and people have different definition of, definitions of it, I, I think it holds for w- words like pivot as well. And um, oftentimes we we find ourselves in this, in a conflict, even though we're actually saying the same thing. And part of it's just the acknowledgement that... Um, you know, everyone's perspective is slightly different, right? It's like that old saying, there's there's uh, three opinions to everything, your way, my way, and the right way. And so, you know, um, maybe that's true. I was watching uh, Yellowstone. I don't know if you've watched that series. Uh, yeah, with a passion. <laughs> yeah, dude, like we're on the final season. I was like addicted to that stuff. Amazing, amazing, amazing show. And uh, in the show, uh, Kevin Costner says, or uh, John Dutton, he says, uh, you know, he's explaining, what was it? He's explaining like right or wrong. And he's like, there's no right or wrong. You know what I mean? There's only yeah, the yeah. winner where the loser has accepted the fact that he's lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, truth be told, I, I, I was once on a trip and I had to order a, uh, not had, I was given the opportunity to order a cowboy hat. And so I was like, oh, I won't get to do this too often. So they said, well, what do you want it to look like? I said, I want the full Rip experience. Give me exactly what Rip wears in Yellowstone. So there's that's a, you know, um, there's some some great characters that come out of there, but also some interesting like you know stories about how how did how did you scale a ranch in the 1800s, 1900s, and 2000s, right? And so there's a lot of truth to some of those stories when you dig in behind the drama. And and parallels also because i would say that the fact that you reach scale someone's always trying to come and take your ranch from you you know which is the whole thing whole premise for the whole for the whole show really is like this massive massive ranch in montana uh or montana uh, to better say it (laughs) montana there will be a different state um (laughs) we should do it together shane uh, but it's like you know they're at, you know they're at the scale thing, and someone's coming to take it from you. you know? Yeah, and so the key I've learned is everybody needs a Beth Dutton in their life to protect them. Oh so. my God, I love that character. 
Yep. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, I, you know, my, my wife is my Beth Dutton. I'm delighted that she protects me from all the stupid things I might otherwise try. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you're, a, if you're a male entrepreneur and you don't know what to do, consult a woman, <laughs> not your mother, because <laughs> she'll mother. just tell you it's a good thing. You're, you're okay, Sonny, you know. Uh, but um, let's wrap this up, Shane. I want to play, have a bit of fun with you and then we'll let you go. If you could get into the Matt Brown show time machine and go back to yourself on day one and, you know, and, and think about all the things you failed at, succeeded at, et cetera, in the context of scale, what advice would you give yourself on day one? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, I, I, I think it's sh- keep, keep shaking that sifter to find the right partners as early as possible. Right. Um, there's the there are the occasions where I look back and thought we were probably putting perfect in front of good enough. And um, at the same time, we were probably not shaking that sifter as harshly as we should have been to really identify all the right partners, because there were some mistakes where we spent time in the wrong places. But I think we've started to figure out the right cadence of um, not putting perfect in front of good enough and, you know, say, shaking that sifter of partners because you really do need the right partners to scale a business. That idea, by the way, is really powerful, Him that it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be good enough. And I think if, if we just did more of that, you know how much time and headache and frustration that would take away from most of our journeys? Because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a perfectionist by nature, like, you know, creatively it's like everything must be done right like if there's a line off like hey but like it's good enough dude no one's going to give a shit about your line (laughs) yeah that's that's very true it's like that parking spot um i'd rather get the pole position and have my car park crooked than wait and lose the spot to somebody else because i was trying to line up it up perfectly (laughs) there you go shane it's been a privilege having you here thanks everybody we'll speak to you all again soon cheers